As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we've got Champions League to discuss. To do so, I'm joined by two fine fellows, one of whom is not Ryan Bailey. Ryan Bailey, uh, I believe, is recovering, getting ready for a marathon, traveling, being a globetrotter, such as he is. Instead, I've got a man who has never had drinks thrown at him, at least not in his daily life. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hello, I thought you were going to say a man who has never trotted the globe, which would be That's pretty accurate, uh, certainly in the last three years. I barely yeah. leave my house now. Well, I, mean, I uh, think that's that's kind of like there's a global pandemic that has some responsibility for that. Because, Graham, whenever we talk about a stadium or a random town in a random country, you're like, oh, yeah, I was there briefly. I got a shirt from there. I feel like you've traveled much more than you're letting on. Um, that That's probably true, uh, but not in the last three years. That's why I always reference uh, my trip to Portland. Uh-huh. Uh, because that was literally the last place I went <laughs> that wasn't my house or my garden or the supermarket. <laughs> it's an eventful time for Graham Rutherford. Have you had any drinks thrown at you in your house or garden? Because then you do have some commonality with Diego Simeone. Um, uh, I feel like my wife has got to have done that at yeah, some point. Yeah, once or twice. A dr- yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely happened. Yeah. At like the third time you wore uh, a soccer kit out instead of like formal attire for an event, is that when you got a drink thrown at you? Yeah, I'm not sure it was a like a full uh, like cardboard cup of Coke as Simeone yeah. was getting thrown yeah. at him. Uh, <laughs> but maybe who knows? Maybe that was what, what uh, that was uh, my wife's choice of ammunition. I feel like I'm gonna have to go back to the Simeone uh, cups throwing at him conversation because I have so many more thoughts, so many more questions for you, Graham. But first, we should introduce our third co-host with us, a man who I'm assuming uh, is in some form of mourning after Ajax were knocked out. Joe Lowry, do you have a black armband on? Are you wearing all black? How are you sort of mourning the departure of Ajax from the Champions League? Taylor, I'm still just grasping at straws trying to figure out how to yep. mourn between Ajax and how CCO went last night on Wednesday yeah. night, March 16th. <laughs> things are wild right now. Soccer, and I- I'll say this later, and I will say it again, just in the spirit of redundancy. Soccer is cruel, guys. Soccer is cruel. Yep. 
Uh, podcasting, hopefully less cruel. I really hope that Joe has never finished a recording session and then Cameras caught him saying what Bruce Arena said about his players <laughs> during the penalty shootout. If so, Joe, I apologize. Oh, Taylor, your your uh, your allusions and your analogies here and your references are on point so far. This is good stuff. Thank you, man. That was Graham. Have you seen that clip yes. of Bruce Arena? Because that I've watched it like four hundred times. It's. It's brutal. I can hear him. I can actually hear like the the grumpy like old man like being very confused by what happened. I'm assuming that was a fun way to wake up this morning, Graham. Yeah. Yeah, so I woke up and, and Twitter was just on fire with MLS people <laughs> complaining about CCL and also yep. that Bruce Arena clip, which yep. was maybe the most Bruce Arena thing I've ever seen in my life. And there have been a few Bruce Bruce Arena moments throughout his <laughs> long career, but that might top the list. Uh, we will talk about Bruce Arena. We will talk about CONCACAF Champions League later on. We'll even talk about Ajax. Joe, I am sorry again. Uh, is there is there a team that you now find yourself gravitating towards for the remainder of this competition? No, hope is dead. Is it? All right. Hope, hope is, is dead. dead. <laughs> there is, there's no particular team at this point other than Ajax, but there's still a lot of good soccer that's going to be played, which I am excited for. Yeah, because Manchester United were knocked out, which means we can still have good <laughs> soccer. Let's talk about that one. Man United eliminated 2-1 on aggregate by Atletico Madrid, uh, courtesy of a 41st-minute goal from Renan Lodi. Uh, that gave Atleti the 1-0 win on the road. I would say not necessarily an unexpected result. I would say that it was 1-0 and not 4-5 was kind of surprising given the way these two teams were playing coming in, Graham. But here we are, Manchester United out, and I would say Atleti deservedly moving on. Yeah, I, I think they were the, the smarter of the two teams over, over the two legs. I, I think they probably played the, the better soccer as well. We need to keep in mind that first leg, we came away saying, how did Atleti not win this win this, win this this leg? You know, they drew that one all. Anthony Alanga takes pretty much its only chance of the whole game that, that they, cre- they created. So they got slightly fortunate. I, I thought Manchester United in this and the second leg actually played some some decent stuff. And as has become par for the course from this United team, I thought it was a a bit of a weird performance from them. I didn't think they were all that good against Tottenham at the weekend, and yet they won that match. In this match, as I say, I saw a lot of good things, yet they they lost. Uh, The first half in particular was decent from Manchester United, I thought anyway. There was a good tempo, there was intensity. I I didn't feel like the defensive structure was all that bad. Yes, there was a disallowed goal and then the goal itself, which kind of changed the the match entirely. But up until those moments, it didn't feel like, against Spurs, it felt like Son and Kane were causing Mane lots of problems and they were getting in behind. I didn't feel like Atleti were getting in behind as often as that. Um, Fred was balling in the middle of midfield in the middle of the pitch. Uh, right. what, what a first half performance that was from him. He he is oh he's so weird, but I kind of love him at the same time. Um, I thought Sancho was doing a, a good job of isolating his man and creating one on one opportunities. And unlike a lot of matches United have played this season, um, including the one against Spurs at the weekend, I honestly felt in the first half that they had a level of of control I felt like they they were the ones that were dictating the game there was a composure to their play and then obviously it all falls apart when that Atleti goes in and the same old Manchester United reappears I swear as soon as that goal goes in and they as I say they had a warning through that uh, Yao Felix disallowed goal from a similar scenario of a pass in behind and then a, a ball to the back post I thought to myself that's the ball game that that's over because this as I've said before this United team are a very a stupid team, quite frankly. Um, and they're just so naive in the way that they approach the rest of the match. 
They were quite happy to, to just flip aimless cross after aimless cross into the box. They allowed Atleti to, to sit in and where there was an opportunity for United to try and open up a different angle, the execution was lacking, none more so than at the end of the match where Marcus Rashford gives away the ball in the, the 88th minute when United have Atleti penned in and there's an opportunity to, to get a cross in or something and, and that was the end of the match really in the 88th minute because I thought Atleti are just going to run that down and that's exactly what they did. So there was execution lacking, there was um, a lack of in-match intelligence, even the changes from, from, from Ranić as well. I thought were were slightly peculiar. So I thought the way Man United finished this match was a bit of a microcosm of, of the mess that they're in as a club. They bring on a, a 33-year-old playmaker who's barely featured this season to try and change the game and create something. Um, and he's charged with creating something for their combined 71-year-old strike partnership of Ronaldo <laughs> and Cavani. Yeah. Meanwhile, their captain, Harry Maguire, comes off for a 33-year-old midfield anchor and their technical director, who's in the dugout for some reason, gets booked. Um, it was just a very weird end to the match and just added to the sense that I have about Manchester United that they are not a smart team and there's a there's a lot of naivety about that group of players and Atletico Madrid despite the fact this season they haven't been their usual selves they are still tailor-made to exploit all of those weaknesses and over the two legs they did. That was an excellent diagnosis of this game description of this game breakdown of this game Graham and I will start with the last part first, because speaking as a Man United fan, I always like to clarify that up front. Uh, I felt pretty depressed in those final minutes, not just because Marcus Rashford gives the ball away and then it does feel like all the momentum is lost, but also there was a moment for me of realizing, here are the substitutions if people weren't watching this game. Rashford comes on for Elanga in the 67th, Matic comes on for McTominay, and Pogba for Fernandez. it's a triple change. Then we have Cavani for Fred, then we have Mata for Maguire. And some of those changes are like for like, but then when we have Cavani for Fred, Mata for Maguire, if United had managed to get that equalizer, I have zero idea what formation or shape they are playing in extra time, whereas we know exactly what Atleti is going to do. And I agree with you, Graham, as well, that that first goal really did change, or that only goal really did change everything. Rangnick talked about how this was a team that you don't want to go behind to. And I, I do think that was a huge part of their game plan was get to halftime, Make sure it's at least nil-nil, and then we'll sort of start making the adjustments we need to get that goal to find a way through this one. And when that goal happens late in the first half, I think it just completely changes the dynamic for Manchester United. I think it brings about a lot of panic, and I think there's a feeling of, this is a team that you absolutely don't want to trail, and now here we are, oh no. And I don't know if they recovered any of that momentum. Joe, uh, we have kept you quiet. I'm assuming you've just been revving your engines ready to go, spinning those wheels. Uh, do you agree with what, what Graham and I have been saying, mostly Graham has been saying, uh, or do you see any uh, differences? No, I agree with the general narrative that you guys have brought up here, especially with the, the second half. Once Manchester United go down at the end of the first half, I agree that it kind of felt like this game was going to be over, and especially it felt that way as the second half progressed and nothing really was happening for Manchester United. But the challenge for Manchester United when they go down is that I don't think they have the consistent attacking spacing for me, certainly, to be confident about them breaking down a low block or really to be effective at breaking down a low block, which is exactly what Atleti was going to throw at them and really did throw at them even before they went down 1-0. I don't think you ever really feel good about Manchester United in that situation because that's not their M.O., right, under Ralph Rangnick. Their M.O. is to press and to win the ball and to try to attack aggressively, although we haven't seen that nearly as much with Manchester United as we have with some of Rangnick's past teams. 
But that's much more what they're set up to do, to be dangerous in transition, than they are to be dangerous against a lower block team, which is why I think this was always a bad matchup for them. I I agree with Graham. I think Manchester United was probably the better team in the first half up until that goal. But then as soon as that happens, real questions start to pop up about how Manchester United was ever going to get back in this game. And they didn't, right? They very much did not ever create sustainable and regular chances to really influence the game and get back into this thing. Combine that problem and that tactical issue that Manchester United have had with the fact that in the last 30 minutes of play, the ball, 30 minutes of the game, I should say, the ball was only in play for just over 11 minutes. Guys, that's insane, <laughs> right? Atleti completely did exactly what they, they kind of always do. It's their brand under Simeone. They didn't let... Manchester United even have a chance to get back in this game because the ball was never in play. It, as soon as that goal happens, again, it's it's such a cliche quote, the goals change games, but it, it really did in this game because it forced Manchester United to absolutely be the protagonist, which they were in large part even before the goal, but still, it forced them to be the protagonist and then gave Atleti the opportunity to just poop house their way out of this game, and that's exactly what happened. The, I don't think the, um, look, I don't think my United went out because of the referee, but I, I don't think the referee helped uh, Manchester United in a, in a lot of cases of trying to... He was breaking up the game a lot for Atleti. There was one instance in particular towards the end where um, Diego Llorente... Uh, not Diego Llorente, uh, Marcus Llorente Marcus. is inside the box with what looks to be a like an injured ankle and yeah. the referee stops play um, when Man United have the ball on the edge of the box. I am not aware of a rule that means he, the referee can stop play for that injury. Uh, it needs to be a head injury, and it certainly wasn't a head injury. And there was there was a number of cases of uh, really bad inconsistency and him delaying Minetti taking goal kicks for reasons that were unknown. And as I say, that wasn't the reason Minetti went out of this out of this out of this uh, tie. There wasn't any big decision that the referee got wrong. But in terms of just disrupting the match and the flow of the match, which was one of Minetti's problems against that, that, this Atleti team, yeah, some of the officiating didn't help them. It it didn't. It didn't for sure. I cannot tell if I'm just like Concacaf. Uh, like accustomed, or maybe if I'm just Atleti accustomed, but like I, I feel like we knew that was going to be the case, especially if Atletico got that early lead or got that that go ahead goal, that they would be doing that. And I think that all speaks to a level of discipline or the difference in the level of discipline between the, between the two teams. Because I feel my opinion is the way you deal with some of the the housery there is is to play your game and not let it visibly affect you. And that's a big thing uh, Simeone does. Uh, I was listening to the Talk of the Devils podcast where they were talking about different moments where Simeone makes people uncomfortable and does not sort of spare feelings. Uh, they were telling a story about Gary Neville uh, when he was coaching Valencia going to shake hands with Simeone afterwards and Simeone just walked right past him, didn't say anything to him to go like support the fans. And Gary Neville thought he was a jerk, but thought he was a jerk who wins and knows how to win. And I think if you want to handle that, if you want to kind of roll with the the time-wasting and the housery, you have to just play your game and be on about it. And I feel like Man United, as the game went on, you could see that frustration that when there's one later in the second half when he makes them move the ball back for a free kick, like two yards, and it's as though he's told them, never mind, the free kick's going the other way. And there was just that level of... Like uh, discombobulation or just frustration from Manchester United that I think started to bubble up and really prevented them from playing any consistent attack. And for Atleti, like if if Ralph Rangnick told somebody, "Hey, go get a yellow card," like like get it, get stuck in on a tackle, draw a yellow, oh well, 
like, I think maybe a player would do that, but it would require a little bit of conversation. I think Simeone could tell Koke, go two-foot somebody and get a red card, and Koke would do it without asking questions. I think Simeone has sort of built that discipline and that attention to detail. I guess getting a red card is attention to detail for purposes of this analogy. But I think the organization and structure or the differences between the two has never been more clear than in this game. Uh, Graham, I think you were about to jump in. Apologies for rambling. No, I was just going to say, and that's one of the the things that um, just added to my sense of Minet being a very naive team. If I'm Ranić, and look, maybe he, maybe he did do this, Ranić. What I'm about to say, because we have learned from what he has publicly said in interviews that a lot of these Minet players are just not listening to his instruction. But if I'm Ranić at halftime, I'm saying to my Minet players, don't let Atleti get to you. Keep your focus. No more. No matter what happens, don't get frustrated. And you said about teams that get visibly frustrated. I think United get more visibly frustrated than any other yep. side I've ever encountered in this sport. Bruno Fernandez complains about everything. Pogba complains about everything. Maguire complains about everything. They they do co- complain about a lot, and that that must just uh, shake your focus. And in, in contrast to Atleti, who just as you say, they do everything. Their manager. Once I saw a quote from Simeone this week who said his Atleti team, uh, quote, will dive into a swimming pool whether there's water in it or not. And I thought that was a, a good yeah. summary of how <laughs> Atleti play for Simeone. And it's just the complete opposite for this United team. It is. I, I feel mildly uncomfortable that the only way I can explain Simeone's like importance to that club is sort of as a cult leader. Like, that's what I feel like we keep ending up with. It's like, yeah, he could ask them to... To, to drink flavor aid or dive into a pool with no water, and they would just do it because that's how much he has drilled them. But at the same time, you could see the way they make little adjustments, the way he he will have somebody, oh, that pe- person keeps being open, we're giving them five yards too much space, you cheat over here, now this person will f- fill that gap, and then they do it exactly. And there's just so much precision to what they're doing. Uh, Joe, I wanted to ask about a, a phrase you used earlier when discussing Manchester United, because I'm guessing you don't have that same concern when it comes to Atleti, but when you were talking about consistent attacking spacing, uh, I'm guessing you don't have that concern for Atleti, but can you explain more about what the issue is for Man United? Sure. I, I do have that concern about Atleti in particular oh. context, and I think that's important here to, to start with the context. So the way this game flowed is that Manchester United had a lot of the ball, and Atleti were defending fairly deep in their half, right? That's how these games often go when Atleti is involved. And really, that's how games tend to go even when Manchester United is involved against a team that that will like to have some possession, like some top Premier League teams. Manchester United is willing to play without the ball. It's what they want to do, as I mentioned earlier, under Rangnick. With Atleti, they don't have that Manchester City, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp level of possession. That's not their game. And, and Simeone's tried in the past maybe to instill little bits and pieces of that. But he hasn't really tried to get them doing positional play, right? Having players in set spots that can then rotate and move based on where the ball is, based on where their teammates are, based on the goal and based on the opposition, right? That doesn't happen for Atleti. And that doesn't really happen for Manchester United either. Now, when you're Manchester United in this game, and you're down 1-0, just as they were in the first leg, you're going to have the ball, and Atleti's going to sit deep. So then the question becomes, can you break them down? Can you use the ball? Can you use your spacing and your movement off the ball to break through? It's one of the hardest things to do in soccer, but I don't have confidence in Manchester United's ability to do that because, again, that's not their MO under Ralph Reinick. They're trying to attack and transition and to press and to be chaos merchants, even though we don't see that a ton, I think, partially based on the personnel of the squad and other factors that maybe we mentioned before. With Atleti, it's not their MO either. They don't want to do the positional play stuff. They want to sit deep. They want to attack and transition. I think their spacing is really, really good in a lot of moments in transition. 
But I, I'm not sure they're all that much better in possession than a team like Manchester United, or at least they don't drill themselves to be an elite possession team. And in this game, they didn't need to be. Uh, Joe, who do you think of the teams we're going to talk about today? Let's go with that. Who do you think is the best at, at sort of demonstrating how to attack, how to use positional play, how to use possession to your advantage? I think it's got to be Ajax, right? And Ch- Chelsea's kind of up there, although I don't think they've been as good under Thomas Tuchel this year as they were certainly towards the end of last year. And Villarreal is the other one. Under Unai Emery, they'll do a lot of the positional play stuff. And I guess, spoiler alert, but they were really poor in that first half against Juve. You could see them, though, working through some of the rotations. Yep. And I think that's both a good thing and a bad thing. I don't think they were as organized as they, as they would like to be. Or I don't think they were as organized in that half as they should be. But Chelsea do that stuff right out of the 3-4-3 or the, the 3-5-2 that we saw against Lille. And Ajax do that stuff out of a really flexible 4-2-3-1. It's almost always a back three in possession with Daly Blind hugging back with the center backs. Then one of the center backs will push forward. Gravenberg will push really wide on the left side. I mean, there's so much fluidity and so much emphasis on how do we move without the ball to create and disorganize the opposition. But we just don't see that stuff from Atleti, and we don't see that stuff from Manchester United, which is fine. You don't have to play that way. But when the game sets up to basically force you to do that stuff or, or force you to at least have the ball, being prepared and having a plan with, with you know how you want to go about that is kind of important. Yeah, having a plan, getting your players on board, kind of important. Uh, maybe not so important for Manchester United on the day. Uh, Graham, we've talked a lot about the managers and the teams in general. Are there specific Atleti players you think we should uh, mention before we move on? I thought Antoine Griezmann was excellent for Atleti, um, but I do laugh at the thought of Simeone punishing him for for leaving Atleti in the first place because he is putting in a power of work for Atleti at the, at the yeah. moment. Obviously, that has... That's always kind of been his his game. Um, that wasn't really his game at Barcelona, but certainly as a, an Atletico Madrid player, that has always been his game. But it feels like Simeone has turned the dial up to 11 on the defensive work rate on, on Griezmann. And uh, yeah, it feels like Simeone has told him he needs to cover at least 15 kilometers of, of the pitch per half. <laughs> Um, to make up for, for leaving Atleti in, in, in the first place. But yeah, I thought he was very important to the way Atletico Madrid uh, played, the way they prevented Minot from from playing through them and how they also managed to get out on occasion, having him as an outlet as well. So on both sides of the ball, I thought he was uh, an important figure for them. I'm now obsessed with the idea of, of Simeone going to Griezmann and saying, like, you have to cover at least 12 kilometers a game. If you're not doing that, it's not good enough work rate. And then one of his technical assistants leans in and is like, he covers 12 and a half. Like, pause. <laughs> 15! 15 kilometers every game. Like, Simeone will never be happy, I think. But that is, I guess, what makes him so good at what he does. I will move us on, but I would ask you both this. Manchester United are expected to use this sort of mini gap they now have uh, over the next, I think, week and a half to evaluate coaching possibilities, future hires. Do either of you feel like Diego Simeone would be a name that they should be considering? I don't know if they could afford him. I don't think they could pull him away from Atleti, and I don't know why he would leave that setup where he has so much power and so much backing and is able to make so many decisions and have this sort of vision. I don't know if you have that at Man United, but I wonder if either of you think he would be a good hire there. I I think he would be a good hire, but I don't think he would be happy there or Manchester United as a club would be happy there. It seems to me that they're looking for someone who will play more proactive soccer to pair with some of the stars they have in their squad and to pair with their reputation. Building and, and, and making a culture and getting a culture on board with your pretty reductive style is not easy to do, but I think that's exactly what Simeone has done and has built at Atletico Madrid, and I don't know if that translates to Manchester United. 
yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think Man United would need to have, um, I mean, he could be a great hire if they were to go for him, but they would, they would need a, a complete cultural reset in terms of how that club is set up, the makeup of their squad, which I know, I know needs a rebuild already, but you really would need to completely, I don't know what players you would keep, to be honest. If Harry Maguire, Simeone. Harry Maguire, Graham. <laughs> Maybe Harry Maguire, yeah. But this is also a club uh, whose fans chant attack, attack, attack during games. So that's what I mean when I say a cultural reset. It would be the whole club would need to change. And if they if they did that, like he would be great. But I think if you dropped Simeone into United as they currently are this summer, it probably doesn't work. Would he keep uh, David De Gea, Graham, or would he want to bring in Jan Oblak and his face to make some saves? I mean, Jan, Jan Oblak this season has been absolutely dreadful. This was his first game that he's he's been good all season. Um, that save from Alanga with his face, as as you referenced, yeah. then the, the the save from Varane as well, the header, two good saves. That was much more like the the Jan Oblak that we used to see last season, but. Um, yeah, I, I I like to think Simeone would just like to transplant his his whole Atleti team to Manchester United. So you better get used to Luis Suarez playing up front for Manchester United, Taylor. I don't know how that makes you feel. Uh, it makes me feel sadder than I already feel. So thanks for that, Graham. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take a break. We're all going to take a break for me to uh, weep quietly, then break things. Then we'll be back to talk about three more Champions League games. Talk to you soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I'm hoping you never left. Uh, Joe Lowry might want to leave for this segment in which we discuss Benfica's 1-0 win on the road against Ajax. That means Benfica advance 3-2 on aggregate. Joe, how much responsibility do you feel like you need to take for this loss? I feel like you hyped up at Ajax. (laughs) I'm sure they listened. I'm sure they heard you. I'm sure they all thought, we got this. Now they've lost. Graham said it. I'm inclined to agree, Graham. It's kind of your fault. Yeah, that's my bad, fellas. Sorry I didn't mark uh, Nunez on that goal. That's that's totally on me, guys. You know, a little I mean, bit, a little bit, a little bit. This was a real bummer for me. I'm not, not going to lie, guys. I, actually, I, I really enjoy watching them, and I hope, at least with all of my Ajax on-field propaganda, I should clarify, that some people out there paid more attention to them than they otherwise would have. Because I still think, even in this game, you could see how fun of a team this is. And I really do believe that they're really, really fun. They've been a blast to watch in the league. They've been a blast to watch in this tournament. They come out in this game in the same shape with almost the exact same personnel they've used virtually all season in that 4-2-3-1 on paper that then is fluid and goes everywhere, like I mentioned in the last segment. And I thought in the first 10 or 15 minutes of this game, they were they were having their way with Benfica, right? They were driving into the box on both sides. Tadic was getting touches in meaningful attacking positions. The same with Anthony on the, on the right side. The midfield was involved and active and engaged. I liked a lot of what I saw early on, 
But then credit to Benfica, who I do not think were the better team in this game or in this tie. But they settled into their defensive shape, and, and they really implemented their approach well and their game plan well in this game to make Ajax's life pretty challenging. Benfica wasn't coming out and trying to control the ball. I think that would have been foolish. It's not their uh, their best move in a game like this. But they play against the ball for the most part in this really flexible, adaptive defensive shape. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but at times Benfica's defensive spacing was weird. They had players in a bunch of different spots. They had a bunch of players in the back line that don't normally go there. They were stretched in midfield. But I think there was a purpose to how they defended and how they moved. They had uh, Ramos dropping in from from a higher position to add another number centrally. At times, they had a winger moving in centrally to make it look almost like a 4-3-3, depending on the moment. The defensive approach in general was really rotational. Players moving everywhere, trying to deny Ajax space centrally, which is the key of so many different teams' defensive approaches. They were trying to block off those center areas so that Ajax couldn't create a ton of dangerous chances from those spots. And I think it worked. I think Benfica, in in large part, executed their game plan well. They didn't create many chances. They hadn't had a shot for ages before they get that goal on the free kick from Nunez. But overall, I think Benfica should be proud of how they played in this game, and I think Ajax should be proud of how they played in this competition. Joe, I know we don't talk a ton about Benfica on TSS, so apologies for putting this one on you. But do you get the sense that that is a regular thing that Benfica do defensively or do you feel like that was a thing they did against Ajax a team they expected to have possession and to be ball dominant I don't think it's a regular thing I haven't watched as much Benfica as I would like to but they certainly get more possession in the league in 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 Portugal than they do in a game like this and defensively even I saw changes from leg one to leg two I didn't see this much rotational defensive adaptivity in in leg one I saw a lot more of that in this game from Tuesday. So I think this is something that they, they drew up after, at least in large part, or even in small parts, that they drew up after the first leg to try and really make Ajax's lives miserable. And I think at least to a degree they accomplished that in this game. All right, final question for you on this one, Joe. Would you then like to see Benfica draw Atleti in the next round? Would you like to see two very or usually very no, good defensively no. teams, or would you rather <laughs> see Benfica going against a more uh, competent attacking side to see how they handle that? Yeah, I, I think I'd least enjoy seeing Benfica and Atletico Madrid go against each other. I think it would be more entertaining for us and and for fans of these teams to watch them against a different style of team. And Benfica and Atletico don't have the same style, but there would be a lot of similarities in a game like that. But hey, maybe we'd get Julian Weigel dropping dimes out of central midfield because <laughs> he's a very capable on-the-ball presence. Rafa Silva's technical and skilled. I know uh, Roman Yoramchuk doesn't start this game, but he's incredibly good up top and hasn't hasn't gotten as much look with Benfica as I'd hoped he would maybe this season. There's talent there for them to have the ball, and they do that at times. But no, still, I think keep these teams out of the same game. Uh, fair enough. Uh, Joe, appreciate that one. Graham, uh, I, I, I introduced Joe for this one as being maybe to blame, maybe depressed with the <laughs> result with Ajax being out. It sounds to me like you are, if anything, as sad Ajax have been eliminated. Yeah, I mean, it feels, it does feel like a giant anticlimax that that Ajax are out of this competition after one defeat from eight games, by the way. So they win all six of their their group stage matches, which hadn't, hadn't, they'd never done that before. They then draw away to Benfica, which is not a a bad result. They hold the lead, I think, twice in that game, certainly once, because Benfica, the final goal is Benfica's Yamchuk scores that. Um, So to then play what was. Uh, by all accounts, and 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 Joe, I think you nail it there. They they play a very Ajax sort of game in this in this match. They they kind of do the things that they always do. They don't get you know the the one opportunity. I think that was the the biggest failing was they they do have 
kind of half chances and I think uh, 16 shots in total but only two on target and they fail to create one big chance according to Opta. Benfica create one big chance and they score from that one big chance. So maybe that was the failing of their performance here. But yeah, it, it felt like they were building something pretty special, Ajax. Um, and then one slightly sloppy performance, certainly in attacking third. And, and it's all over. And you do wonder if that's that's it for this Ajax team because that is the way it works for, for, for Ajax where there's a lot of speculation about where Eric Ten Hag's going to be next season. Ryan Gravenberch is, is um, I think, Bayern Munich. I was reading reports this morning. Bayern Munich are pretty confident of getting him this summer. Mayonetta are in the picture for him. I'm sure there are a number of other players. Anthony, you know, maybe he's a target for a number of clubs this summer. And that's just the way it is for Ajax. They, they do work in these cycles. The previous cycle was Matthias de Ligt and uh, Donny van der Beek and all the, those players kind of moved on as, as well. And I'm sure a number of these Ajax players will, will move on too. And then they're left to rebuild something again. So it, it, it feels like I wanted to see how this Ajax team could really do against one of the favourites, against a, a City or a Liverpool or a Chelsea um, and in the end, we, we haven't really seen that because uh, I guess Dortmund was maybe on paper the strongest team they faced. They beat them home and away. Then Benfica, they're not a, a bad team by any stretch, but they're not one of the elite kind of front runners. And it, it kind of leaves a question mark over this Ajax team for me. We don't really know how, how good they could have been. And that that's very like unsatisfying. I feel like I'm not going to have closure on this Ajax team now. And it, it's yeah, frustrating. This is an odd question I put to both of you. Is there a way that we could do better in the way we cover Ajax? Because I feel like with the Eredivisie, we we maybe don't really focus on them at all. Or when we do, it's only in sort of the big games near the end of the season. Then we'll talk about them in the Champions League. But to your point, Graham, they are so cyclical. They do have so much talent come through that then gets sold on. They move their managers on. It feels like if you're not kind of paying attention to them consistently... You, you don't see the development, you don't see the kind of rise mm-hmm. of that team. But I also, at the same time, I don't have as much interest in watching Ajax play like the 13th team in Eredivisie or anything like that. Yeah. So I would like to be able to appreciate them more. I'm just not quite sure how. Yeah, this, so this is the old this is the old Scottish football question. This is the yep. same sort of scenario yep. where you don't know what the true gauge is. So a good example this season is Rangers. Rangers are, are second in the Scottish Premiership, uh, three points behind Celtic. Yet Rangers go to Dortmund and thump them in the Europa League. They're one win away from making the quarterfinals of the Europa League. So with Rangers, you don't really know, is the Europa League their true level? Is that as good as they actually are? And they're underperforming in the Scottish Premiership? Or is it the other way around? And I guess when you have that that difference in quality between the continental competition and your domestic league, which which Ajax have as, as well, um, it, is, it is trickier to kind of track where where teams are. I mean, we, we've we seen probably the best of Ajax in the Champions League this season. In the Eredivisie, they actually have a, a bit of a fight on their hands with, with PSV for that for that title. You know, they have they are top, but they, have, they haven't they uh, have been top for the whole season. So again, it's similar to the Rangers question. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to how to answer your question, Taylor, but absolutely it's a, it's a challenge when you have teams from, I'm reluctant to say lesser leagues because the Dutch yeah. Eredivisie shouldn't really be a lesser league. But unfortunately, we live in this. We have this landscape now in European soccer where it's the big five leagues and then everyone else. And then Eredivisie is in the everyone else category. And it is a challenge when assessing the teams from those leagues. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the challenge here, Taylor, just in general with coverage, is there's just not enough time in the day to do everything. There right? is that. So I think yeah. giving Ajax the time of day in, in Champions League is 
of course, not as much as we could do, but I think it's a very reasonable and respectable amount to be thinking about this team while also still checking on them in the Eredivisie from time to time and, and checking on Scotland and checking on Liga Mekis and checking on, you know, wherever, Portugal, all these different leagues that there's just simply not enough time to discuss in the same level of detail. I think we get a pretty good idea of what this Ajax team is and their key players and what's next for them or what maybe could be next for them, as you mentioned earlier, Taylor. I think we can get a pretty good idea of those things with the conversations we've been having so far. Taylor, sorry to to move the discussion in a different direction, but if we're talking about Ten Hag, right, I'm interested in your thoughts on Eric Ten Hag. So the two, and I'm also interested in your thoughts on Pochettino, because those are the two managers that my United have been linked with for the summer. Does the fact that Ajax go out here early in the Champions League and also PSG go out early, does that change your thinking in any way? Like, how has that affected who you want to be your, your team's next manager? Ten Hag, no, it definitely doesn't. Um, it would be nice to have seen them go further, and I think that is what a lot of like the broader population, it's what we're talking about, pays attention to is the Champions League. And so Ajax making a deeper run, I think, makes him a more attractive candidate, and he is a coach that I think would help Manchester United. I don't think a coach alone, a manager alone, is going to change that club, but I think he has... Enough of that foundation, the Ajax Foundation, the philosophy behind it, and I think if they're hiring him to bring in that philosophy, I think that works uh, if they're going to back him. A lot of ifs in there. But I think you don't always get a ton of immediate acceptance of foreign hires, of lesser-known hires coming into the Premier League from a mass media standpoint, from even a fandom standpoint. And I think if he had gotten them to go on a deeper run, maybe knocked out a bigger club or two, I do think that makes it an easier hire Pochettino, I'm mostly just confused about because <laughs> I, if anything, I just feel like this will, similar to Messi, sort of be a part of his career that maybe we all just sort of choose to forget happen. And that is what I think will happen with Messi. It will be sort of, yeah, he was at Barcelona forever, right? Well, there was that like one like year period and then he went back to Barcelona and then it's all fine. Like, Jordan I, I, the Wizards. Yeah, y- yes, we don't ever need to talk about that or him <laughs> managing the Bobcats. We don't need that one either. Uh, I'm guessing that one resonates less. But yeah, I, I I just think it's it's such a thankless task to manage PSG because they have so much talent that you're expected to win everything, but you're also expected to get that talent kind of playing seamless football, putting themselves above or like behind the group. And I don't think that's what that club has necessarily made a priority, and so I don't know how you get the team to function as a unit when it's a lot of well-paid individuals and a coach that they're just sort of saying, yeah, figure it out, make them play the way you want to, even if that's kind of stands at odds with your overall philosophy. It, it, it Now, I guess the reporting is that they're going to change that. It's going to be about maybe, like, quote-unquote, lower-level players, but players that bind the collective spirit, that they, I, th- I think it was Conte is now the, the manager they've decided is the one to make that happen. Because Antonio Conte never wants high-profile signings and demands <laughs> uh, public public statements to back him in the transfer market. Uh, so I don't. I, I think the Pochettino sacking doesn't bother me as much because that situation never seemed like it was going to be a particularly good one for him. But I will say that I do lean Ten Hag over Pochettino, even if neither of them ends up coming. Because if I'm Eric Ten Hag and let's say there's the Man United gig, the PSG gig, and randomly, like, I don't know if it would be, but like the Gladbach gig, I might take Borussia Mönchengladbach over those other two because there just seems to be so much chaos, but there is so much money on offer that 
Who knows where it will go? Uh, that is a long way of rambling to say I'm okay with either one. Do you? Do either of you have ideas on which one makes more sense? Um, for Manchester United, I think Ten Hag because I see a lot of. I think my need to try and predict what's going to come next in football. Yeah. They've been so reactive so many times. And I think Pochettino, as much as I like Pochettino, he he, he might already have kind of, his his methods might have already had their day. And with, with uh, Ten Hag, I see things like underlapping runs from Gravenberch past Tadic. I see um, another Gravenberch one, how he goes from an, an eight into a number 10 and the two kind of, the two central uh, attacking midfielders really pushing up and the different uh, rotations that Ajax have. And I, I just see a lot of ideas that I think are going to be commonplace in football for the next like three to four years. And Mine needs someone who's 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 going to um, take them to that point where they, they have those ideas and they're not being too re- too reactive. So Ten Hag for me, but I, I, I'm super interested in what, if he moves on, I'm super interested in where he's going to go and what he's going to do. And equally, if he, if he stays at Ajax, I'm interested in the team. I think it's fair to assume there's probably going to be a couple of players leave in the summer for Ajax because that always happens. But I, I would be really interested to see what he does next because Ten Hag has now built two really good teams at Ajax. The first team, which obviously made the Champions League semifinals, is a, they play a very different way and they're a very different team to, to this team that everyone was very excited about. So I think it, he's got it in him to um, change and adapt and build something slightly different. And I'd be interested to see what he, what he did at, at Ajax if he stays there too. I just can't wait for Manchester United to hire a manager. That's that's all. <laughs> I mean, to, to sort this out because uh, we can turn any convo into a Manchester United convo, baby. Yeah, yeah, I apologize for that. And I No, that was I me. Apolog- that was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, it's a question I was going to ask anyway. And I would like to be able, uh, I was thinking about it, because I'd like to be able to answer that question more succinctly. And I think my succinct answer is I would like it to be Eric Ten Hag, at least right now. But I think what both PSG and Manchester United, and weirdly to some extent Ajax have shown, is that the manager alone cannot make the difference unless the club is backing that manager entirely. See Atleti and Diego Simeone. But if Eric Ten Hag comes in with these ideas about like philosophy of style of play and the way he wants to coach, the way he wants the youth team to be coordinated and training to be conducted and how they're going to play and what players are going to do in different positions, and then the ownership doesn't back him or signs players he doesn't need or just continues to kind of make odd choices that don't quite fit with what with the overall vision I think we'll continue to see the same issues and so I think it's a manager coming in with these proactive ideas to make the team play more expansive and interesting football but cohesive football at that but you then have to have uh, the decision makers sort of behind that one in a useful way as opposed to signing Harry Maguire or signing Messi. Those are comparable players. So I think a lot of it will be about how the two clubs sort of define their vision moving forward. And I hope for Manchester United, it's Rangnick moving into an actual advisory role that he has this insight into who fits, who doesn't fit, what style could work. And then you bring in a manager like Ten Hag. They work together to uh, solidify recruitment, to solidify youth development, and to sort of have this united vision for the way the team is playing. That would be my hope. Uh, I don't know if we will 
end up seeing that. I don't know if we'll end up seeing Thomas Tuchel at Manchester United. That's the other one that's been reported today uh, because of the issues at Chelsea. Uh, but I don't know if I'm Thomas Tuchel if I am jumping ship from, ship from Chelsea either. Uh, not just because of this win, but they do get the 2-1 to one win uh, against Lille. Uh, Chelsea win 4-1 to one on aggregate. And Thomas Tuchel Graham continues to prove that he is a manager who can make adjustments and get the team playing so, so good. Yeah, I, I actually think when you say the, the adjustments there the Tuchel, that Tuchel made in this game, and I'll, I'll go into what those adjustments were, I think he's he's the best in the world at, at doing that, at, at spotting something that isn't working. And it can be something really subtle. It doesn't even have to be something obvious. But he doesn't wait. He often makes changes at halftime. And Chelsea invariably are better in the second half after those changes. And that's that's what happened in this match. Because when I saw the the lineups before kickoff, um, I actually thought we'd see Chelsea dominate things in central midfield. And and they, and they did, to, to a certain extent. They had a free man in there purely through Leo using a, a double pivot and Chelsea playing a midfield three of Jorginho, Kante and, and Kovacic. However, I didn't feel like, like that three was really the, the, the three that started the match. I didn't really feel that that was... That was working that well. Yes, Chelsea did have a lot of possession, but there was just such little attacking threat. Um, and one of the things that that gave Chelsea trouble in the first half as well on the defensive side of the ball was Lille's willingness to switch the play and to use the use the fullbacks. And Chelsea just found themselves kind of uh, clogged up in the centre of the pitch with too many players out there, not enough mobility to get out to the wings. And I thought that's that was one of the changes that um, that was one of the reasons behind the changes that Tuchel made, where he he takes off Kovacic and he puts on Mason Mount. Now the obvious reason for bringing on Mason Mount is his creativity. Um, as I say, Chelsea weren't really creating all that much in in, in the first half. Um, and recently, Tuchel has been opting for just two of those three that he started with: Jorginho, Kante, and Kovacic. I think that's been a big reason why he has stayed away from that is there's just not enough creativity. So you bring on Mount, you push him slightly up the pitch, you get him closer to, to Havertz and, and, and Pulisic. He's, he's very mobile as well, uh, Mount. And that mobility meant that they kept on getting him over to, uh, to Jallo um, on, on, on the, on the, on the right side for Leo, Mount was positioned on the on the left side, and um, that just that just helped kind of stem Leo's outlet out from the back. And those changes, for me anyway, completely altered the dynamic of of this match. I know Chelsea get that equalising goal through through Pulisic, which by the way was an exceptional finish. What an incredible finish that was! And also the other slight quirk of that equalising goal is it does come through Chelsea having that extra man in midfield. Jorginho has the time to pick the pass through to Pulisic, so I guess it, that was a benefit of having the extra man in midfield. But uh, at the second half, Chelsea just completely controlled this match. I never really felt like Lille were going were gonna to score again, and um, a lot of it was down to the to the changes that, that Tuchel made. He's, he's very good at that. He is, and I think this is another example of making changes, being aware of your team, but also having that team be very drilled. Because the thing I noticed, especially in the first 30 minutes, it happens three or four times. Jorginho does it once, Conte does it once, is just the willingness to do the professional foul. And it's a thing that Man City used to be talked about a, talked about a lot with them, about how that was a deliberate tactic, that Fernandinho gets away with four t- fouls before he ever gets a yellow. And... That aside, I saw a lot of that from Chelsea, that any time it felt like Lille were about to develop a counter, any time that maybe Chelsea's shot would be blocked and it would spill to a Lille player, they were turning, and maybe they could launch a counter. There was a shove in the back. There was a kick. There was just something to stop that play. And then usually there was, if it was Jorginho, 
uh, protestation in front of the ball so that that restart could not happen quickly. And there was gamesmanship from Chelsea that I think was subtle, but then there were also those moments, Graham, like you talked about some of the changes made to really force Lille into changing what they were doing because you put on that front three, and I don't think you can be quite as adventurous if you're Lille. You can't commit as many numbers. You can't leave yourself as open to the counter because if you do, you get scored upon, and that is what happened in the second half. So I thought... Another well-managed game from Thomas Tuchel. I thought that goal from Christian Pulisic was just an absolute backbreaker. Leal, get that goal, get the penalty. Burak smashes it, and the crowd is up for it. And it's just like, oh, maybe this is going to happen. Maybe the energy is there. And Pulisic scores right before halftime, and it just kills the vibe. And I don't say that negatively, unless you're a Leal fan, in which case it definitely was. But it absolutely took the drama out of that game but if you're Chelsea, that is exactly what you want it to happen. And so I think it's a credit to Pulisic and a credit to Thomas Tuchel as well. Joe, Graham and I have been talking uh, quite a bit. Any thoughts on Lille 1, Chelsea 2? Sure. I've got a couple of player thoughts to start Please. with here. Christian Pulisic, to just continue that thought forward, is in really good form ahead Please. of this next international window. Almost <laughs> for the last month, basically, with Chelsea. Yep. He's been really, really good. He's got a couple goals. His off-the-ball movement has been sharp. It's been aggressive, and that was certainly a feature of the goal he scores in first-half stoppage time in this game to get on the end of that lovely ball from Jorginho. But Pulisic is playing very well right now, and it feels like he's in a decent spot ahead of this next international window, the most important one for the U.S., I should add. It feels like he's in a good place ahead of those games against Mexico and Panama and Costa Rica, which is a great thing for the U.S. The other player that I wanted to mention from this game is Jonathan David and Lille. They're without Renato Sanchez in this game, so I can't talk about him. He's, he's dealing with a little injury. But Jonathan David, I thought, was extremely dangerous in this game. Lille didn't create an overwhelming number of chances, but he... David was aggressive in transition. He was picking up spaces in the attacking half. He was drawing fouls. He megs uh, Chalaba in the 34th minute right after Chalaba comes on for Andres Christensen. He's yeah. drawing fouls, and he, he draws a free kick right outside the box in that moment, or a few yards outside the box in that moment. He's so, so good in those moments, and I, I can't wait to see what Jonathan David's next stop is because we'd be naive to think that there won't be a next stop for him probably over this summer transfer window. I think he'll be gone. I think Renato Sanchez will be gone. Both of those players are brilliant, and I think they'll be real contributors to wherever they go next. This is totally random. Jonathan David feels like a Newcastle signing to me in that they have money, but I, I do think they're going to be smart in the way they spend it. I don't know if it will just be gigantic names to show, hey, we're a gigantic club, but maybe smart acquisitions. And Jonathan David feels like he could come into the Premier League and be just fine, oh, yeah. especially if he has people kind of feeding him and facilitating the way he wants to play. I'm with you, Joe. I think he here's, is destined for a here, big move. Here's my prediction based on absolutely nothing at all. Just a hunch, right? Um, so Darwin Nunes to Newcastle and Jonathan David to West Ham is my prediction this summer. Ooh, that does make a lot of sense when you look at the lack of options for West Ham. Uh, Jonathan David moving there. All right, Graham, I like that one better. Let's go with that instead of Newcastle, and then I, I will still be able to kind of like Jonathan David, even if he destroys <laughs> the U.S. men's national team. Uh, Graham, I'm assuming you will be able to answer this one, but I will ask Joe first. Joe, are you, are you familiar with the concept of, like, welcome to the game, son? No, I'm not. Graham, are you familiar with that? And if so, can you explain? Are you talking like a crunching tackle to exactly. welcome? Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. 
Um, I really enjoyed. There were two moments of that in this game. Uh, one of them, Joe, as you just mentioned, was yeah, Trevor Chalabas subbing on and then immediately being megged, uh, having to foul, almost giving up a penalty and getting a yellow card. That felt very like welcome to the game, son. And then Mason Mount comes on at halftime and immediately just gets a, a, a an aggressive boot. That also felt like welcome. We're gonna kick you a bunch and we're gonna try to put you off your game. That did not end up happening for Leo, but I thought uh, that was an interesting thing that stood out was sort of Chelsea's professional fouling and then uh, Lille making Chelsea sort of pay for that. Uh, I already mentioned Bulusic. I already mentioned that I thought Burak Yilmaz was a very good player for Lille up until he started to get really frustrated, but I think of him as pretty slow in leading the line and being that big target man. I wasn't ready for him to drop in and facilitate attacking play as much as he did. So a good game from him, a solid performance from Leo, maybe less so from Tim Weah, who you might be able to blame for the uh, Aspilicueta goal at the end. Didn't quite pick him up, but overall uh, a fun game and a convincing win for Chelsea who do advance to the next round. One more break from us and we have one more Champions League game, uh, excuse me, European Champions League game to be discussed. Many more CCL games on top of that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Final UEFA Champions League game for us to break down was a surprise one. Uh, Villarreal 3, Juve 0. Villarreal with the big win on the road. Villarreal 4-1 winners on aggregate. Uh, I will say that there were a lot of similarities, Graham, between this one and the Manchester United game. It seemed like Juve were trying to kind of control the game, not get caught, not give up any goals cheaply, and sort of build their way into the game, grow their way into the game, establish dominance, and eventually find a way through. It felt like they would, especially in the early second half. It seemed like there was just many moments when Juve were about to do it, and then they didn't, and then I think they panicked a little bit. Yeah, so so in the first half, I actually thought Juventus, and Joe referenced this at the, at the top of the podcast, but uh, Villarreal struggled in the first half, and Juventus, it felt like, were creating... I think Juventus created more opportunities in the first half of this game than they've created all season in Serie A under uh, Max Allegri. It felt like that way That way, anyway. Uh, Vlavic looked dangerous, as he tends to do. He hits the, the woodwork in this game. Um, and yeah, there was a number of opportunities for Juventus. Um and given the way Villarreal set up in this match, those missed chances were were, were really costly because Juventus needed to make the most of that superiority when they had it. And the longer the game went on, it just felt like the more passive Juventus became. And obviously Villarreal's whole approach was to stay compact and, and very much kind of do the Atletico Madrid thing. Um, and Juventus just, as they kind of froze up, they just didn't have a, a way to create much at all I thought they really missed Chiesa in this match so they they um he's out with injury at the moment they just had so little threat in the wide areas and with Villarreal 
locking up the centre of the pitch. It was out wide where Juventus needed someone who to create one-on-one opportunities and, and take on a man. And they just didn't have that at all. Obviously, Chiesa would normally be that that sort of player. Um, and Villarreal, they just played in to Villarreal's hands. I mean, if you were being kind to Villarreal in terms of their approach for some of this game, they, they were trying to draw Juventus out with the slow tempo of, of some of their possession play. But Juventus didn't really get drawn out. And it meant that there were periods of this match when Villarreal had the ball where it was literally being played at at walking pace, and I have to say yep. it, that at that point at nil nil before the Villarreal goals, I did actually catch the Villarreal goals live. But at that point, I went, yeah, I'm probably going to watch Arsenal Liverpool for a little <laughs> period here and come back to this one later. But credit to Villarreal, Villarreal, because they they executed their game plan certainly much better than Juventus did. Yeah, and I think a special special credit for me goes to Unai Emery, a manager who you know had it up and down time, mostly a downtime in England, and I think. Maybe that is unfairly remembered because we also know of him as being the uh, Europa League specialist. But in this game, I thought the adjustments he makes, the little decisions he makes, and just sort of the ability to pick his team up both via his voice. I saw a lot of screaming in the 64th minute. He is actively coaching and yelling at people when there's a misplaced pass and then there's not the transition to defense he wants and as he is yelling he also turns and like you can see him gesturing and two substitutions appear about 30 seconds later so there was a a game management there that I thought was was really interesting in the way he sort of made sure his squad stayed fresh because this I think was a game where Juve could play like at 90% capacity, and if VRL weren't uh, at 100%, they would find a way through Juve. And Unai Emery, I think, found a way to get his team functioning at full capacity for almost the entirety of this one, such that they end up with a a pretty dominant win. The scoreline, pretty dominant. I would say that like a lot of the goals don't happen until later on with the final two or in the final five minutes or thereabouts. It wasn't quite as comprehensive I wonder, Joe, if Juve, I'm I'm genuinely asking you this because I cannot tell if it's just my red, white, and blue glasses here, but were Juve missing Weston McKinney? I agree with Graham that they were missing Chiesa, but he also did feel like a player that would have helped them in this game, just bringing that energy, that dynamism, and that ability to get that late arriving shot. I think he would have, but not just because of the context of this game. But just because Weston McKinney, I really think, is one of Juve's best central midfielders. They play three central midfielders in this game, I think we'd be foolish after the year that Weston McKinney's had, or really after the last you know three months or whatever it's been that Weston McKinney's had. We'd be foolish to say that he's not one of their best three central midfielders over one of Artur or Rabio or Locatelli. He probably wouldn't play over Artur in this game because there's a pretty different skill set there between those two players. But I think we would see him over one of Rabio or Locatelli. Locatelli, as Graham mentioned, I believe that was Monday, Graham, that you talked about this, kind of is filling McKenney's role of being that highest central midfielder of those three behind the front two. He'll go forward and drive into that front line, and it'll almost become a front three with uh, Morata and Locatelli flanking Vlahovic as that lone nine. You see that a lot when you watch Juve, and I've certainly seen that in the Champions League games from them over the last few weeks. It's one of their default shapes in possession. But yeah, Weston McKinney helps this team, Taylor. I really do believe that. But to be clear, I think Juve... There's another reality where Juve win this game pretty comfortably. I think after that first half where they really are controlling things, and Villarreal, I thought even though there's a lot to like about them in terms of how they approach games, they want to be aesthetically pleasing, they want to be enjoyable to watch, 
they were really poor in that first 45 and even stretches of the second half before the game just breaks loose and, and you get the Rukani uh, foul in the box and then Villarreal just break things open late in the second half. I don't think Villarreal were good at all in possession or in transition. They were sloppy. They weren't creating chances. And Juve was creating chances. Flahovic had a couple of, of nice looks. There's moments for them in open play. There's moments for them on set pieces. I think Juve had a good first half and it's certainly unfortunate for them that things turn so aggressively in that second half, and it doesn't look good for Allegri, it doesn't look good for this team. And credit to Villarreal, they they withstood some of that pressure, and having them in the quarterfinals of this competition, along with Benfica, two teams that I certainly didn't think would be here, is cool. And it's a reminder of why the Champions League and these knockout competitions are so fun. The best teams don't always win. I'm not sure that Villarreal was the best team in this tie. They might be, they might not be. But it's fun to see some of these teams in the deeper rounds and the deeper pieces of this tournament. Everything went Villarreal's way, and I'm, I mean everything yeah. in this match. So Geronimo yeah. really has an, an excellent performance, makes a number of good saves. Geronimo really uh, can be quite vulnerable at times. I'm not sure he's a, a particularly great goalkeeper. You know, Serge Aurier starts at right back. You're maybe looking at someone getting in behind him, but Juventus just didn't have the, the personnel to do that. Maybe with injuries, they do have the personnel to do that. Even things like... Um, uh, Unai Emery brings on Gerard Moreno, who is a penalty kick specialist for Villarreal. Four minutes later, Villarreal have a penalty, and yep. Gerard Moreno, Moreno's on the pitch, and he, he didn't start the match. Even things like that just felt like it fell Villarreal's way, and soccer can be like that. Uh, particularly knockout format soccer can be like that. Um, I 100% agree, Joe, uh, Juventus probably win this match on, a, on another night, but on this night, it was it was Villarreal's. Uh, and it was credit to Moreno as well, because there is a lengthy delay between when the foul on Coquelin takes place, then there's VAR, then there's a lot of conversating, there's a lot of people standing around Moreno and chatting with Moreno as he's trying to kind of focus on taking that penalty, but he still smashes it and takes it really well. Same for Danjuma for the third one. It's a really calm finish from him, but again, he has to wait a really long time. I think there's another VAR review on that one. Uh, players around him, players in his ear, a calm finish from him. And Danjuma uh, was the player for Villarreal that really did stand out to me. He was the only one that I remember trying to create in the first half and sort of alleviating pressure via the dribble, but then also keeping the ball moving with his with his passing work. And that he's another player who I won't be surprised if he gets a big move sometime in the near future. But I also kind of hope he doesn't because I think he makes Villarreal a better, slightly more watchable team. He was... Uh, Serge Aurier does as well, but for the wrong reasons. Go ahead, Graham. I was going to say, he, he Dan Juma was at Bournemouth a year ago, and now he look where he is now. That's quite a, quite a rise, and I, I agree. I don't think his rise is, has, has finished. I think he's probably got a big move in him. Uh, yeah, all right. Well done, Villarreal, for that recruitment. Well done for that win. Anything else uh, from this game, gentlemen? Actually, I have one more question for you, Graham. I'll jump in and interrupt myself with it. Uh, you mentioned that Allegri... <laughs> Has it made this Juve team a particularly exciting team to watch? Do you think this result is a concern for the Juve board? Is there any speculation we see Allegri uh, get sacked or walk at the end of the season? I personally think that would be a mistake for Juve, uh, but they have made mistakes in the past. Will they make another one here? I haven't seen any speculation. That doesn't mean it's it's yep. not out there. I just <laughs> haven't seen it in, in, in front of me. I, I do think it will probably be in... Uh, in the thoughts of the Juventus board, but Allegri probably has the benefit of, of, of 
precedent and what's happened in recent seasons for for, for Juventus. So this is the third season, fourth season in a row, if you count the, the Ajax team that made the semi-finals, which at the, the point that Juventus played Ajax in that tournament four seasons ago, they weren't seen as one of the favourites. Um, so four seasons in a row that Juventus have got a quote-unquote easy draw in the, in the first knockout round of the Champions League. They had Ajax, they've had Porto, they have had, I'm forgetting one more, and then it's Villarreal this season. I forget who the fourth one is. But um, yeah, they, they have not done well in the Champions League recently and in, in, in recent seasons. So I, I wonder if maybe Allegri will point to that and say, well, look, the other guys haven't done very well either. So um, I'm interested in why you think it would be a mistake, though. I, I don't have really have an opinion on it, um, to be honest, Taylor, but I'm interested in why you think he should he should stay on. Yeah, I think I think I'm probably in the minority actually on that one uh, because I know there were some results where I saw Juve fans and Juve pundits talking about how they were really unimpressed. There was like the nil nil with Milan, I think, earlier in this season. I'll have to go back and check my notes, but I just think for the where they've been recently and how much sort of turmoil there's been with with Sari with Pirlo, I don't feel like they've had the consistency that I've come to expect from Juve, and we know Allegri is capable of delivering that. But I wonder how much this team is similar a little bit to Manchester United. It's just disparate parts that haven't quite had the time to gel. Then you bring in Vlavic and you've got a new attacker. You've got other players leaving. And I wonder if maybe a full preseason, he's just able to get them more familiar with what he wants and get them playing more effective attacking uh, soccer, if not counterattacking soccer. Um, I think I think just I'm increasingly inclined to say that managers need at least a season, which is not a thing I used to think. And maybe that's me being stupid in the past. But I, I, I guess I'm just slowly realizing how much time it takes to get if you want that philosophy and the ideals that you think are fundamental to playing the way you want to play. It takes time to get a bunch of different individuals to understand that, to embrace it, to be okay with self-sacrifice or not getting the minutes or not being able to play the exact way they want to. You have to build that consensus. Historically, it feels like Allegri has been able to do that. So I guess I feel like he would be able to do it again. But if you make another change, then you have to have more time and more sort of rejuvenation of the squad and more expenditures. And I don't know if that makes Juve better, uh, but I am also not a Juve fan. I don't really have a ton of knowledge about Juve or Serie A, so I don't want to necessarily say I, I know for sure, but I feel like it would be a mistake personally. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I think that... That that sounds about right, but I also think if Antonio Conte leaves Spurs in the summer, oh, that. <laughs> then you go and get Antonio Conte and get him back. To At the this. risk of going even longer, I mentioned Maurizio Sarri, and there were the the chants from the crowd about how they were not enjoying Sarri ball. Uh, I'm trying to keep this PG rated. Would Pochettino? Do either of you feel like Pochettino would make Juve a better team, or would he be a more popular figure with Juve because there would be. I think at least some investment in the squad with him in charge, but I think also he would play a style that seems more uh, sort of conducive to what Juve want to play or how they want to be perceived for playing. Pochettino makes sense to me at Juve, even if I'm then advocating that Allegri should stay. They had that, though. Like, they did this last season with Pirlo, and they they fired him, obviously, and they bring Allegri in, and now... You know, we're talking about should Allegri be here next season or not, which I think is a fair conversation to have because this has been a, I don't want to say disaster of a season, but it's it's been a poor year for Juve. They're out of the Champions League. They're not going to win the Serie A title. There's a slight chance that happens, but it's not yeah, realistic. I think that, uh, so, <laughs> I mean, it's understandable that these kinds of things are coming up, but I, I just feel like Juve have backed themselves into a corner here by having a quick trigger finger to get rid of Pirlo, who... 
was not worse last season than what Allegri... Like, like the season last year for Juve is not any worse than the season has been this year for Allegri. And so now, will Pochettino fix things and will he make them better? Maybe, but will they give him enough time to actually do that? I, I couldn't tell you, Taylor. Yeah, and will they give him good, good fullbacks? <laughs> Pochettino knows, needs those and Juventus don't really have those, so... Yeah, there is that. Uh, Joe, March 17th, I've written down Juve is not going to win the Serie A title. We'll we'll revisit. We will revisit that uh, later on if things end up changing. But for now, we've talked about plenty of the European Champions League. Joe, let's take a minute to talk CCL. Okay, rapid fire time, folks. Yes, sir. That's about all I can do at this point. NYCFC on uh, what was that Tuesday now? They lost to Comunicaciones in Guatemala 4-2, but win 5-5 on aggregate. This was a ridiculous game, one that I cannot believe actually happened. Tati Castellanos has a phenomenal free kick. NYCFC look like they're going to get out of this game and, and be pretty comfortable. And then there's an utter collapse in the second half. And they are very fortunate to get out without losing that game at, at an even worse goal deficit and losing this tie in general. They were poor in this game. And, and to be fair to NYCFC, they've had some ridiculous travel. They played a home game in L.A. They played a home game in Connecticut. They played a home game in New York City. They've been everywhere along with Central America so far this MLS season. They've not had an easy time, but they're extremely fortunate to make it on to the second final, to the semifinals, excuse me, of this competition other MLS teams cannot say the same so far. CF Montreal draw 1-1 at home against Cruz Azul, meaning that they lose 2-1 on aggregate in that competition. They were fine, I guess, in, in both legs of this competition. I do not think they were the better team in these two legs to Cruz Azul. Cruz Azul will move on to the semifinals where they will play Pumas, who came back and beat the Revolution 3-0 at home after the Revs beat Pumas 3-0 at home. And uh, Pumas go on to win 4-3 in penalties. There's a viral Bruce Arena gif that we mentioned at the top of the show. Sebastian Legit skies his penalty. The Revs get picked apart in this game in their 4-4-2 diamond. Pumas fullbacks just run right through him. Sebastian Saucedo gets a goal to cap this thing off for Pumas. It's a collapse from the revolution. There's no other way to phrase it. Uh, Maybe the Seattle Sounders will do better. Maybe they won't, but they have that same 3-0 lead going into the away leg in Mexico against Club León. That's happening tonight, Thursday, March 17th, as we're recording in the morning on Thursday. I don't know what will happen in that game, but this was supposed to be the year that an MLS team wins this thing. We could have seen all four teams in the semifinals of this competition. Now at least one Liga Mekis team will be in the final because both uh, Cruz Azul and Pumas are on that same side of the bracket. It's been a collapse for MLS. There's really no other way to phrase that right now. If Seattle wins and you get at least one team from MLS in the final, we're having a little bit of a different conversation. But uh, yeah, MLS did not do themselves well and certainly did not cover themselves in glory on Wednesday. Joe, how would you feel about doing a 101 episode roughly entitled Why Can't MLS Teams Do Better in the CONCACAF Champions League? I'd, I'd feel good about it. I don't think it would be long, right? I mean, this was included in this I, this whole idea of MLS not preparing its teams very well yeah. to compete against Mexico. I mean, this is a huge storyline surrounding the league right now. There's just not enough investment. Now, I will say, sorry, putting a, a quick pause on that thought, that's not an excuse for the revolution who lost last night. Uh, Herc mm-hmm. Gomez was tweeting about this and I think made yeah. some really good points on Twitter. Yeah. The salary difference, which is usually the big issue between MLS and Liga MX, Liga MX spends a lot more money, generally speaking, in the top of their league on players. MLS can't compete with that right now with how their roster rules are, are written. But in this game between the Revs and Pumas, Pumas don't spend a lot, according to Herc. They don't, they're not one of the top teams in Mexico in terms of the wage bill. And so the Revs losing, I think, comes down to uh, a poor game plan by Bruce Arena, overly passive play, and really poor individual moments. And when you have all those things combining, 
it's no surprise really that you're getting shellacked in Mexico, which has been the story of MLS in this competition. But really the main part and the main theme for MLS has been we just don't have enough, and we being MLS teams here when they're coming into this competition, we just don't have enough good players. We don't have enough depth. We don't have enough talent to balance this in MLS play. And that's appearing to rear its ugly head again in this iteration. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you about like the money thing has always been the thing I've heard that the salary budget needs to change true. if we want if we want and it, I, I don't disagree with that. But yeah, I think I saw a lot of those same conversations, the, the Herc one, especially that you were mentioning that just pointed out that like it's not always money, though. A yeah. lot of it is just like I think a belief, a willingness to kind of fight. And to some extent, I, I wonder how much it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know coaches say. They don't like read the headlines. Players aren't paying attention to that. They're focused on the results on the on the pitch. But like like Bill Simmons, uh, b- back when he was a writer, used to write about uh, the Red Sox and how you could feel there was just this atmosphere before the Red Sox started winning. That as soon as a thing went wrong in the playoffs, the whole crowd was just like, "Oh, here we go again." And there was PSG. just this vibe. Yeah, exactly. There just becomes a vibe, and it's why I say that Pulisic goal was so important for Chelsea because it just completely nullified the crowd. And when if you're a player and you're being picked up by the crowd and they're cheering for every corner and for every tackle and for every shot, and then they just die off, they're just silent, there's just that feeling of like, oh, we lost the momentum, maybe this isn't going to happen, and you start to question yourself, you start to be focused on things that aren't the game. And that New England, New England game, there was a lot of that. Uh, New England fans might want to earmuff for this one, but man, did it remind me of the U.S. loss to Trinidad and Tobago in Cuba. Not just because Bruce Arena is there, not even just because Omar Gonzalez is starting at center back, and that in the penalty <laughs> shootout, we have uh, Josie Altador make his, we have Sebastian Legette miss his pretty badly. There's a lot of familiar faces there, but it was just also, like, weirdly, maybe it was just the tint of my TV, but even the the color of the pitch looked really similar to me, and you could tell that there had been a lot of water. Um, but the lack of fight, the the kind of, like, almost playing scared a little bit, or just nervous. There was just a lot of nervousness on display in that game, whereas for Pumas, you could just see them growing in confidence, growing into the game, and... It just it was just such a, a stark contrast. I cannot imagine anybody in the world bet money on the Revs to win that penalty shootout when it went to penalties. I honestly thought they might end up losing like 4-0 in the shootout. So I guess it's credit to them that they made it go as long as they did. But it was a surprising result, not just because of the scoreline, but because of the kind of complete capitulation. And I would love to talk more about CCL and what teams, what needs to happen uh, psychologically, financially, tactically to get a, an MLS team to win. But maybe we still will, Joe, because we theoretically have two of the four semifinalists. And if Seattle do manage to hold on, find a way to get through, then we'll definitely have one MLS team in the final. Who knows what will happen then? Other than that, we will absolutely be discussing that game and the games leading up to it. And by we, I mean mostly Joe Lauer. <laughs> never say never to an MLS team winning this thing, but... Uh, I think a lot of confidence has been shaken, but man, my confidence in this tournament being just elite content has never Mm -hmm. shaken because CCL does not disappoint. It disappoints if you're a Revs fan or a Montreal fan, but man, in general, this competition is the gift that just keeps on giving from a content perspective. Graham, do you do you get to watch much CCL? I'm wondering how it is for a person who isn't quite as wrapped up in it all to uh, to watch this tournament, especially in relation to the UEFA Champions League. It's almost impossible for me to watch the CONCACAF <laughs> Champions League. I, I don't think anyone has the rights in, yeah. in, in the UK. In fact, I'm pretty sure no one has the Buy rights. Buy them, so Graham. I, you do it. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, any, if I ever have to watch a match, it has to be on a, a shoddy st- stream that is definitely not legal um, or more most more common is uh, I wake up in the morning and my my Twitter has all the all the kind of updates of what's happened, which is exactly what happened this morning, and it was full of angry New England fans yeah. Uh, complaining. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, may- maybe the solution is that we should all just go see uh, a Comunicaciones uh, game. We'll all just do a road trip there. That could yeah. be a TSS I'm hangout. I'm so down. <laughs> <laughs> Although I was going to suggest that the the first destination, maybe the way to cover them more regularly is to do a TSS road slash plane trip to Amsterdam to watch IX play. Maybe that's a thing we can make happen in 2022. I would definitely be excited for that. I'm I'm assuming you all would be as well. Heck yeah. Let's do it, all man. Right. All right. Yeah. We're going to make that happen. Uh, we're In fact, we're going to end this now. Joe's going to do all the planning. Uh, <laughs> Graham, I, I guess, will have to leave his home slash garden. Graham, are you okay with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm already Googling Amsterdam coffee shops. If you know what I mean. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, before you get to fully Googling, uh, Graham Ruthven, thank you for talking about the various Champions Leagues with us today. <laughs> thank you, Taylor. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you as well. Thank you for enduring my Kuva analogy. I try to <laughs> reference that game as little as possible, but had to do it today. No, I get it, Taylor. I get it. Listeners, thank you all for enduring that as well. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Uh, there's an allocation disorder episode coming out uh, tomorrow. We'll have another Soccer 101 episode, and then we will be back next week with our usual schedule. But for now, that's all from us. We'll talk to you soon.